Hello and welcome to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast. My name is Andy Bromberger. And I'm Rob Caldor. Rob, this is a very special episode of Coffee, Cake and Culture because today we're actually collaborating with another entity. Andy, we're taking this podcasting thing to the next level. Who is this other entity? Okay, so there is a wonderful organisation called Live at Yours and they put on concerts all over the place. And on the 16th of May, they're putting on a fantastic concert at the Great Synagogue. And we've been asked to make a podcast as a type of pre-concert talk for that concert on the 16th of May. And that's who we're collaborating with. And it's very exciting. I have seen music at the Great Synagogue and it's one of those rare things in Sydney, an old building with beautiful acoustics. Gorgeous acoustics. And I think this ensemble will be absolutely beautiful there and the sound as you said the acoustics and the sound will be fabulous so this concert is going to be fabulous it's a piano quartet now piano quartet is made up of piano violin viola and cello and it features some of Australia's best musicians and they're playing three fabulous works the first piece they're playing is Brahms's first piano concerto then Inescu's Romanian Rhapsody Number no. 1, and finally Cordai's Dances of Marasek. And these are fantastic pieces. The first piece is actually the only one written for that type of ensemble. The other two pieces are actually written for orchestra, but have been arranged for a piano quartet. Andy, are there tickets still available? There are two shows, one after the other. So the first one is sold out, but there are still tickets for the late night ones for those of you who like going out late and having a beautiful experience of Sydney in the evening, later evening. This concert is titled My Gypsy Soul. And Rob, I thought that before we actually look at the music, because the concept of gypsy or Romani, as they prefer to be called today, runs through all of these pieces, I thought it was probably a good idea to actually have a look at that music so we can have an idea of what Romani music is and then see how it works in these three pieces. Okay, well, Andy, let's get into it. Okay, so the Romanis are nomadic people. They actually started in North India and worked their way up into Europe. And what they did, music became very part of the Romani culture in the 18th century. And in each place that they moved into they took a lot of the music of the cultural or the ethnic and folk music of the place in that they were living and incorporated that into their Romani sound into their gypsy sound but what we find with the Hungarian gypsies was something slightly different at the end of the 18th century with the rise of the Hungarian nationalist movement Romani bands would perform in parks and promenades and they were even patronised by the aristocrats. So the aristocrats would pay to have Romanis come and play for them. And what started to happen was that the Romanis were now being exposed to the sounds of the cultured European sound and started to add some of those cultured sounds into their own music. And the music of the Hungarian gypsy became a different sound to the gypsy population through the rest of Europe. And not only did their sound change, but they became the sort of, I'm saying this in inverted commas, the gypsy sound that so many composers then used in their music. Think Brahms, think Liszt. They wrote gypsy music. And the gypsy music that they were inspired by was this Hungarian music. So, Andy, what are some of the characteristics of that gypsy sound that you're talking about, the Hungarian gypsy Romani sound? How about we listen to some? Shutan da 
sounding to me what i love about your original explanation of the gypsies how they cherry pick the best of wherever they've been living and add it to their musical mm. sort of style that that was reminiscent nearly of greek music yeah, to me yeah you were going to say that it, it sounded a bit like a zorba didn't it yeah mm. yes and you see it's because this music was really quite improvisatory it's hard to know exactly what their music really did sound like because obviously there's no notation. We'll talk about that more when we talk about Kodai and the way composers like Liszt and Brahms saw this type of music. But I think that's quite a good feel probably of the dance and the rhythms and the ideas of this Romney music. But as they were exposed to more western styles they started to change their instrumentation a bit they started to add things like clarinets and cellos and double basses instruments that they not necessarily would have been a fay with in their ethnic world but as they were now being exposed to a different culture they were bringing this into their music and so it's really interesting that in the 19th century you have the Romanis being influenced by the Western musical tradition as well as the Western musical tradition being influenced by the Romani. And we see that in these pieces that we'll be listening to today. It's lovely to see that sort of uh, dialogue going on, actually. It is. And it really happened very much in the second half of the 19th century because in the second half of the 19th century, composers, almost all composers, were desperate to put their own nationality into their music. So they wanted to put their nationhood in in their music, remembering that the second half of the 19th century was all about countries wanting statehood. You know, Germany didn't exist as we know it today. It was a whole lot of satellite states. Italy, the same. And then you had countries like what we would call now the Czech Republic and Hungary and Poland, all being controlled by the Austro-German areas. And so everybody is putting their national identity into their music because it's a way of spreading nationalism to people. And we see that very much in the second two pieces, the Inescu and the Cordae, although with the Brahms, he was inspired by these folk melodies right from childhood. So, Andy, what are you going to play for us first? Okay, so we're going to start with Johannes Brahms. Now, Brahms was born in 1833 in Hamburg, in Germany, way before Germany as we know it existed. And he died in Vienna in 1897, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Now, he was such a prolific composer of the 19th century, of the Romantic period. He wrote symphonies and concertos and chamber music and piano works and choral compositions and more than 200 songs. He was really a great master of the symphony and a style that we call sonata form, following the traditions of the classical composers, Haydn, like Mozart, and especially Beethoven. And what's interesting is this was a time in history where we actually call it, there was a war going on in the musical world. They call it the War of the Romantics, where you had composers like Brahms, who were still wanting to write music in the classical style, the style of Beethoven. And then you had a whole lot of other composers like Liszt and Wagner who wanted to break with tradition, who didn't want to follow the styles of the classicists and wanted to write music in a totally different style. But Brahms was really a traditionalist and although he wrote with very much his own voice, he was very much writing music that had the same ethos almost of the music of the classical period. 
It's, re- it's really interesting, I think, trying to find your own voice as a, uh, I suppose, a creative in this situation. And that's really a fantastic segue because what we have in this piece of music, which is the Piano Quartet in G Minor, Opus 25, his first piano quartet, he writes it when he's 29. And he really says his whole life that he almost had the breath of Beethoven blowing down his neck. And he didn't write his first symphony till he was 40 because he just said, how can I write anything after Beethoven's Ninth? That is the most epic, most brilliant piece of music ever written. How can I, a lowly composer, even contemplate writing something as brilliant as that? And what we see in this piece of music, the piano quartet, is he comes to Vienna, which is the musical centre of the world. And his piece that he shows this incredibly vibrant musical world is this piano quartet. And when it's first performed, it's performed by members of the the Helmersberger Quartet. And when the violinist, Joseph Helmersberger, finishes playing it, Brahms is playing the piano part. The quartet, the rest of the quartet is being played by members of the Helmersberger Quartet. Apparently, the first violinist sort of stood up and he shouted, this is the air of Beethoven. Brahms, even at this stage, is being touted as almost the next Beethoven, the next composer to follow the traditions of Beethoven. I think obviously a lot of pressure and based on what you said, his breath, Beethoven's breath, that's quite a vivid descriptor. It is. And it, and the thing, the poor old Brahms, he had this often. When he first, he was very good friends with the Schumanns. And when Robert Schumann first heard him play, he wrote this big, huge, long article about the brilliance of this young Brahms. So really, Brahms had a lot to prove. It was quite a huge weight on poor old young Brahms's shoulder. But when what we see in this piece is at almost 30, Brahms is really being able to take those influences of Bach, of Beethoven and of Schubert and transform them into his own voice. So what we hear in this piece is really Brahms becoming a mature composer. He's almost 30 and he's taking the influences of Bach of Beethoven and Schubert and he's transforming it into his own voice. He's not trying to sound like them. He's trying to take their, as I said, their ethos almost, their spirit and putting it, put it in this music. And this piece of music, the piano quartet, the last movement is really, really famous. It's called Rondo a la Zingarese, and that means Gypsy Rondo. But we'll talk about that in a second. Let's talk about the first movement. Because, you know, when I just said to you that, that he had the breath of Beethoven breathing down his neck, and we hear that right at the beginning, because just as Beethoven's Fifth Symphony starts with those four innocuous notes, Da-da-da-da. thank you very much, we have four seemingly innocuous notes starting this quartet. It starts in octaves four notes in octaves on the piano. And then what he does is he takes those four notes and he flips them on their head upside down. Then he takes those four notes again and he plays them four notes lower. And then he plays them again, but those two notes in the middle, he plays it as a chord. So these four notes, these first four notes, then upside down. Now four notes lower, and then stuck together as chords. Okay, now let's have a listen to what it sounds like actually in context.
I love things like that where you take four notes and you flip it and you change it and it's still it's got a, a lovely ambience a lovely melody it's gorgeous isn't it and those four notes are so important throughout that whole movement but he does one other little thing that is again so Beethoven-esque okay so then we have all of these semitones now a semitone is the smallest unit we can have in western music so this is a semitone right and it feels like a sigh and we have all of these little sighs that then happen after it it sounds like this all these little sighs that happen back and forwards between the instruments giving us this ah throughout it and what's so important is that these little sighs are actually throughout the whole piece of music the whole piece of music is almost built around these little semitones that we hear right at the beginning of this first movement let's have a listen again in context you refer to it as a sigh because it is like dialogue it is like mm. people having a chat i just want to bring you back to another point you mentioned beethoven's influence what is that is that just like having a, a bit of melody or a few sort of notes or whatever that go through the whole piece so what beethoven was so fabulous at as well as everything was taking a tiny idea and taking it almost to its nth degree. His fifth is a perfect example. Da-da-da-dum. I mean, like, what is that? It's Mm. four notes, three of them being exactly the same. It's nothing. But what he does with those four notes created one of the most well-known pieces of music of all time. And so it's taking those tiny snippets and taking them to the most extraordinary scale. And we see that And that's one of the things that Brahms was so interested in in this context was to take these four notes and turn it into a melody and to take this seemingly bizarre thing of a sigh ah, and turning that into a theme that travels through the whole of the piece of music. Not just that first movement, but we'll see how involved it is in the whole piece. So let's move now to the second movement of this piece of music. So the second movement of the piece also has this half step or semitone movement through it. And we hear it in the intermezzo. And in fact, it defines the whole shape of the melody. The melody has a a quiet strength about it, playing dolce, which means sweetly. But once again, we hear this sighing halftone. Let me play again a little bit of the melody on the piano and then we'll hear it again. This has lots of those little semitones in it. You see how the melody is so tight. It's got no big leaps or anything like that. It's all these very tight notes together.
it, it's very evocative music. It's a beautiful melody. Mm. It is a bit hypnotic, I think, in its repetition. Mm, yeah, yeah, I can hear that. I can hear that. And I think it's because it's so tight, like it's it's basically just tones and semitones. It's so tight. There's no real escape. It's very much almost like in a cage. It's so tight. And the third movement, again, has this concept of the semitone in the melody. Now, the melody in the andante, andante means it is at a walking pace, so it's a slower melody, but it, again, is using these concepts of this semitone. Again, let's have a listen. This movement has been described as ravishing. It's just so beautiful. It's just such an exquisitely written movement. Just, yeah, Brahms at his all-time best. But let's get to that last movement. Because what we hear in this last movement is so much of Brahms's um, almost his history when he was 17 and he sort of one of his first real gigs he got was to play piano on tour with this celebrated Jewish Hungarian violinist by the name of Eduard Remini and Remini introduced him to Romani music so the music of the Hungarian gypsies and this was an inspiration for Brahms throughout his whole life. This final movement is called Rondo a la Zengaris, and that means Gypsy Rondo. And a rondo, let me explain what a rondo is for you. A rondo is a form of music where you have a melody followed by a different melody, going back to that original melody, followed by a different melody, going back to that original melody. So if we were thinking about it in letters, it's A, B, A, C, A, D, A, you know, keeping on going. And that C, D, E, F, G, however far you want to go, are different melodies, but it always comes back to that first melody. And this movement is full of these fantastic sounding Hungarian gypsy melodies. I just love the idea of Brahms and Remini just after their gig, going out to some gypsy club and, and like, I really, it, it is influence. Like, it, it, it makes me realise how everything is old, is new, that it's no different to contemporary musicians sharing their their loves and taking influence and it comes through in the compositions. I think, I don't know how, how supportive Remini was actually to Brahms. They parted ways when Remini took, Brahms to hear Liszt play his what his latest piece and young Brahms was so exhausted that he actually fell asleep during the performance and Remini was so disgusted that the whippersnip of Brahms could fall asleep to the brilliance of Liszt that he basically dumped him but he obviously showed him something and showed him definitely introduced him to so many important people at the time let's have a little bit of a listen to this last movement
just movement, there's energy, there's... I love that reference back to the original melody. It is fantastic and it just builds and builds. And then towards the end, the piano has a cadenza. And, you know, the cadenza in music is the little bit, the show bit, the show that that says to you, you thought I was fantastic, but just listen to this. I'm even better than you think I am. But what Brahms does in this is he makes it sound like an instrument called um, a cembalom, which was a Hungarian dulcimer. A dulcimer is one of those instruments, think King Arthur and and the Knights of the Round Table. So before we actually hear this cadenza, how about we actually listen to a little bit of this dulcimer so you know what you're listening to. love the reference to the dulcimer. I love that sort of reference to a different instrument and the mimicry. Exactly. So he's telling you, this is gypsy music. I'm, I know my gypsy music and I'm even giving my cadenza a sound that sounds like gypsy music. So that's the end of the first piece. And I, you can hear the gypsy influences in this piece. It's a really exciting piece of music. The next piece on the program is by a guy called George Inescu. Now, you may never have heard of George Inescu. I personally know, but that says very much more about my musical ignorance, not Inescu's obvious talent. (laughs) His dates are 1881 to 1955. And I think that he is one of those composers that a lot of people haven't heard of. So let me just give you some fantastic quotes by very important people about Inescu and then we'll talk a little bit more about him. The wonderful um, Wunderkind cellist Pablo Casales who was a contemporary of Inescu said this about him. He said he was the greatest musical phenomenal since Mozart. So pretty high praise. He also said one of the greatest geniuses of modern music and Yehudi Menuhin who I know you've heard of was actually Inescu's most famous student and he said of him He will remain for me the absoluteness through which I judge others. And Inescu gave me the right that has guided my entire existence. He also said, the most extraordinary human being, the greatest musician and the most informative influence he had. It's quite a rap. It is pretty much of a rap, isn't it? Absolutely. So what makes Inescu so special? So Inescu was this child prodigy. He was a violinist, a conductor, a teacher and regarded as one of the greatest musicians in Romanian history. He was the eighth child his parents had and the only one to survive childhood. Wow. So we're talking about a period where infant mortality was obviously incredibly high. Now, he started experimenting with composing as a very young child, and his first significant work bears the title Romanian Land. And then it has inscribed on it, Opus for Piano and Violin by George Inescu, Romanian composer, aged five years and a quarter. I suppose with, it, with you being the only of eight surviving, five and a quarter, he must have thought he was like, let's get down what I can. Who knows what's around the corner? I just think it's so cute. And then at seven, he was actually accepted into the Vienna Conservatoire, the youngest student ever to be accepted into the conservatoire. And while he was there, he studied with Joseph Helmersberger Jr. Now, remember we talked about Helmersberger being the quartet that played with Brahms. His teacher was the lead violinist's son, but he also had lessons from the senior Helmersberger because he was the head of the conservatoire at the time. And he actually took Inescu back to his house and introduced Inescu to his idol. And who was his idol? 
France. So I love how we have synergy and synchronicity in all of this. I feel like I was listening, trying to work out the plot of secession. It was just there are lots of who's coming, who's following. Meanwhile, you've got Beethoven's breath over the top of everyone. No, look, Andy, it is interesting to see how focused in that part of the world it was. Maybe it's San Francisco and London in the 60s. It's like where everything's happening. That was very much the case of Paris at that time, but also of Vienna as well. And so... What we see in Inescu's music, now he is Romanian, and we see his music being very highly influenced by the folk music of Romania. Now, as I said to you before, the gypsy music of Romania sounds different from the gypsy music of Hungary because it doesn't have as many influences of Western tonal tradition as the music of Hungary does. Let's start maybe by having a little bit of a listen to some Balkan gypsy music and then we'll talk more about his rhapsody. Lots going on there. Lots of I don't know mo- movement, dancing. You feel like you feel like it's uh, yeah from the village. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? You right. It's got this huge energy about it. So he wrote his probably his most famous compositions. His two Romanian rhapsodies, which he wrote when he was nineteen, and they really have this incredible sense of spontaneity in them and obviously we're not hearing them for orchestra for this concert we're hearing them in an arranged version for the piano quartet now each of these rhapsodies has heaps of elements of this old romanian gypsy music it has the rhythms the air of spontaneity they were written in paris and then first performed in bucharest in 1903 and it's the first one which we'll be hearing at the concert which is also probably his most famous he dedicated it to one of his mates and his counterpoint class at the time in the paris conservatoire it really has this essence of dance to it and he said about it he said was just a few tunes thrown together without thinking about it but if we actually look at the surviving sketches of this piece we see how carefully he worked out the order of the melodies how they should appear and the best instrumentation for each of these melodies so it's not really like he just threw it together there was a lot of thought in it The first Rhapsody is cheerful, it's full of energy, it's outgoing and it starts with this quotation from a folk song that he actually heard from his first violin teacher who was a Romani violinist. The translation of this melody is something like I want to spend my money on drink or I have a coin and I want a drink or something like that. So basically he's got his money and he wants to drink. Let's have a listen to this original song. This is the song that this first melody is based on. Și vreau să-l veu, dorule, dorțule La nișa ăsta nu-i a neu, dorule, dorțule 
Ardă focusare și e la mine să nu mai vie Dorule, măi, floare de pe lin, au foc, doruțule Dar nici la mine, nici la altul se scăpi de satul Dorule, măi, floare de pe lin, The image that pops into my head was like drinking hall it really does it does feel like there should be giant vats of beer and nearly Oktoberfest yeah it really does now let's have a listen to it now in context so we're going to listen to the beginning of the Rhapsody where this melody first comes in Andy, I can hear the melody coming through from the original beer hall kind of drinking song, but no, you can you can hear it. And it's interesting because what he's done is he's taken these, using an Australian term, the larrikinism of that gypsy melody, and he's turned it, he's refined it into the beauty of the classical world and we hear that throughout this piece how it's almost like this juxtaposition between the exoticness of the Romanian folk sound and the sophistication of the western tonal tradition the music of the end of the 19th early 20th century my view of it maybe it's like rural culture meeting urban culture like that's it's the drinking song found it sounded very rural the sophistication that you're referring to is very much the yeah. city. You've got your Budapests and you've got your Viennas. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And it's sort of coming together at this point. And what we have throughout this piece is it starts off with this sort of gentleness. And as it moves, it becomes more and more crazy, more wild, more dancing, more more frenetic. Let's have a little bit of a listen to towards the end-ish where it's going slightly nuts. Andy, the energy levels definitely picked up. <laughs> it's just, it is just 
Incredible. And you were talking before about the last movement of the Brahms being energetic. I mean, this is taking it to a totally different level. This is just exuberant, I suppose, in its energy. And one of the other things that what he does in this piece is that he gives us so many ideas about how to write classical music. And I again, classical, I'm saying Western tonal traditional music and have this sort of gypsy element in it. And what he does is he takes a lot of the scales of the Romanian gypsy and the way that the scales are formed and the way they move from the major to the minor. And he does that in the composition that gives us this real sense of the gypsy element to it. One of the other really interesting things about Enescu is that he wasn't just interested in his own ethnic music. He was actually involved and interested in a lot of different types of ethnic music. He was very, Ravi Shankar, the, the fantastic Indian composer, said that towards the end of Inescu's life, he was very interested in, in Oriental music. And in fact, he took his Wunderkind student, Yuhuri Menuhin, to the colonial exhibition in Paris, where he introduced him to gamelan, the music of Indonesia, which so influenced the, the French composers at the end of the 19th, early 20th century. Debussy was so influenced by gamelan. And so it's interesting that Inescu, as this brilliant violinist, brilliant teacher, wanted to get his students to to hear music from everywhere and experience music from everywhere, as he had done himself in his own compositions. Andy, I love how you put that whole internationalisation on things. And when you actually deep dive into it, there's influences coming from everywhere. Yes, because if, if you are a composer or if you are an artist... You want to experience the greatest of everywhere and the best of everything and the novel of everywhere. And if that means that you have to break out of your bubble and move elsewhere to experience those sorts of things, I think you're going to do it. Whether it's Mozart trying to move out of Salzburg so he can actually go to Mannheim and actually hear that orchestra, or whether it's Debussy spending hours and hours at the the Paris Expo sitting in the tent listening to Gamelan, Whatever it is, these people are wanting to experience music, in this case, different from where they are. And obviously in this case, the the big influencer is the gypsy music. Totally. And that leads us to our final piece in this concert, which is Zoltan Kordai. Now, he is a Hungarian composer. His dates are 1882 to 1967. So again, exactly the same time as uh, Inescu. I mean, they're only a year apart. He was an ethnomusicologist, a music pedagogue, a linguist, a philosopher, as well as creating a really fantastic educational music tool called the Cordai System. Quite a remarkable person, but almost it's his work as an ethnomusicologist, which is so, to me, so incredibly interesting because he realised that with industrialization and the expansion of, of modernism that the indigenous sounds from the areas outside the European cities were going to disappear. And with this brand new invention, the recording device, he went out into the countryside and he made all of these recordings of these ethnic sounds and then spent years and years notating them down so that these sounds wouldn't be lost forever. He started that in 1905 and then 1906 he wrote a thesis on Hungarian folk songs called The Strophic Construction of Hungarian Folk Music. And this was basically a thesis talking about how Hungarian folk music is written and the syntax of Hungarian folk music. He was also a very good friend with the other brilliant ethnomusicologist of the time, Bela Bartok. And he explained and introduced Bartok to this brand new technology, the recording technology. And the two of them really became not only lifelong friends, but champions of each other's works because what both of them wanted to do with their music was not just give you the picture book version of these melodies. What both Bartok and Cordai wanted to do was give you the nuts and bolts, the actual sounds and the makeup 
of these rhythms, these melodies, these folk sounds, but especially the gypsy sounds. So before we listen to the Kodai, I thought that we should now listen to one of these recordings that Bartok made when he went into the field and recorded. So this has been recorded on one of these cylinders right at the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, if we go back in time, probably investing in a bit more uh, sound equipment for Bartok would help. But I get it's pretty wild to hear something from what the early 20th, 20th century. century. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty raw, isn't it? It, it is raw. So this is Bartok out literally yep. in the fields with yep. the gypsies. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Pretty wild. So this piece of music by Kordai, it's called The Dancers of Marasek, and it was written in 1927, and it was originally written for piano. The only reason why he changed it from a piano piece to an orchestral piece was because the famous conductor Toscanini had just conducted one of Cordai's pieces and said, you know what, mate, I'd love to have another one of your pieces on my repertoire. Can you maybe arrange one of them for orchestra? And so Cordai decided to do these dances. Now, if you're wondering what Marasek is, Marasek is actually an area. It's a region. And these are dance, these are meant to be dances of the area. But in actual fact, Maraseki, it became almost a type of dance. So not necessarily of the Marasek area. It became a type of dance from that area and the regions around it. So before we actually listen to the music, how about we again listen to Maraseki music, dance music. So again, you have some reference to where Kordai is going. wrote on his score, he wrote this preface on the score, it is perhaps no accident that most of the old folk dance music has been preserved unto our days in the district of Marasek and that some pieces are called Maraseki. So what he's basically saying is that I've taken ideas from the Marasek area and the dances which are Maraseki dances. But what musicologists have said later is that they're actually not Marasek dancers at all but from the regions around Marasek which is either important or not but what we have in this piece is that it again is in rondo form so remember the rondo form which is the idea with a, a different idea than that first idea coming back and then a different idea and then that first idea coming back again but what he does in it is that when this idea comes back again Instead of it being exactly the same, he actually changes it a bit. So the first time it's fast, then it's slow, and then it's fast again. And it has this, this again, this frenetic excitement to it. Let's have a little bit of a listen.
it's interesting to see where you move from the sort of more folky Maraseki origins, how it's been adapted by Cordai. And it's very lush, isn't it? It's got this very lush feel about it. Maybe not as wild as the Inescu. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So... I hope that what I have done for you in this this little podcast here, both for Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast, and for Live at Yours, is highlighted some of the interesting aspects of the music for this concert, how each of these composers were so influenced by the Romani, the gypsy music at that time, and how it inspired these compositions. If you haven't been to the concert yet, if you're listening to it beforehand, I think you're in for a treat. And I think a lot of people will probably have a listen back after they've been to the concert just to get some context. If you're interested in finding out more about Live at Yours, we will have a link on our show notes. Yes, definitely. And if you are new to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast, please listen to the rest of our series. And if you are new to Live at Yours, have a look and see what their concerts are next. And it's been a pleasure. Thanks, everybody. We'll be getting back to our usual podcasts in upcoming weeks, but don't forget to rate and review us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, usual places. Fantastic. And otherwise, look at anything about Coffee, Cake and Culture at coffeecakeandculture.com.au. Thanks very much, Rob. I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you, everybody. And enjoy the concert on the 16th. See you later. This podcast has been produced by eTales.com.au.